0: Amen. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Hallelujah. Christ is our life. What a beautiful song that we hope to learn as a congregation. And what a beautiful song that would prepare us for the sermon we're about to hear. Today, I am going to do something very unusual. If you are a guest, it's going to be incredibly unusual. If you're a member of the church, you know it's unusual for me to preach someone else's sermon. But I will preach someone else's sermon today unapologetically. The sermon was preached by Jonathan Edwards on July 8, 1741 in Einfield, Connecticut. Now, Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He attended Yale College, and according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, He is widely acknowledged to be America's most important and original philosophical theologian. And he was known to many Christians as the key player or one of the key players God used in the first great awakening that swept through uh, New England in this 18th century. One of the sermons God used in the middle of that revival became so popular that even history books refer to it as one of the most important sermons in American history. The title of that sermon, which I will preach today, is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The response to that sermon preached on July 8th, 1741, was electrifying. We are told that Edwards could not complete the sermon because of people's cries. They cried not because of his dramatic tone. He was actually not a very gifted speaker. He would read from the manuscripts like this. But they cried because of the content of the sermon. Now, the big idea of the sermon is the following. Nothing keeps sinners right now apart from hell or away from hell except God's mere pleasure. This is the big idea of the sermon. Edwards will give ten reasons for this big idea, and then he will unpack lots of applications for his hearers. He claims that the wicked deserve to be cast into hell. God has never promised to save us from hell except for those who respond to Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no hope for the wicked. Even though the sermon was full of imagery of hell, throughout the sermon, Edwards tries to persuade those who are still without Christ to respond to him. Now friends, if you are a visitor this morning and you are not a Christian, I want to warn you about what you will hear you will hear a great and lengthy warning about the reality of hell. You may not like to hear about hell, but I want to tell you right up front how you can escape it, and this you should want to hear. The Bible tells us that God created us perfect in his own image, but we rebelled against God, triggering upon us God's rightful and eternal judgment, yet God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to live a perfect life, the life we could never live, yet he died on our behalf, the death we deserved. He was punished on our behalf and ready to give us instead his perfection. Now Christ stands between us and God, calling us to trust in his sacrifice for our salvation. If we respond to His call by repenting of our sin and turning to Christ in faith, then God will give us a new nature, a new birth, a new family, and a new destiny. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. And all men deserve to spend eternity in hell. But if you hear Christ's voice today and turn to God, you too can escape the wrath of God just as others who are here in this congregation have already done so. And if you'd like to know more about this, of how you can escape the wrath of God, come and talk to me at the end of the service. I would love to talk to you. If you're a Christian this morning, I encourage you to meditate on what Christ saved us from. If you despise any talk about judgment of God, I pray you will not be distracted by the unusual nature of this sermon. I hope it will prepare you to face the judgment of God. Let God speak to you through these words and awaken you just as he revived so many Americans in the 18th century. If hell is real, then it is the most loving act we could do to warn people against it. This is the aim of the sermon today. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Deuteronomy 32:35. Their foot shall slide in due time. In this verse, God threatens his vengeance on the wicked, unbelieving Israelites, who were God's visible people and who lived under the means of grace, but who, notwithstanding all God's wonderful works towards them, remained, as it says in verse 28, void of counsel, having no understanding in them. Under all the cultivations of heaven, they brought forth bitter and poisonous fruit, as in the two verses preceding the text. The expression I have chosen for my text, their foot shall slide in due time, seems to imply the following things relating to the punishment and destruction to which these wicked Israelites were exposed. Four things. One, that they were always exposed to destruction. As one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to fall. This is implied in the manner of their destruction coming upon them, being represented by their foot sliding. The same is expressed in Psalm 73. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. The second thing, it implies that they were always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction. As he that walks in slippery places is always, at every moment, liable to fall, he cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, which is also expressed in Psalm 73. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Three, another thing implied is that they are liable to fall of themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another. As he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing, but his own weight to throw him down. Number four, that the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time is not come. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but would let them go. And then, at that very instant, they shall fall into destruction. As he that stands on such slippery, declining ground, on the edge of a pit, he cannot stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. The observation from the words I would now insist upon you is this, doctrine, and this is a big idea, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Of God. Now, by the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. The truth of this observation may appear by the following considerations and edwards here will give 10 considerations or considerations 10 reasons for this big idea number 1 there is no want of power in god to cast wicked men into hell at any moment man's hands cannot be strong when god rises up the strongest have no power to resist him nor can any deliverer out of his hand He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes, an earthly prince meets with great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel who has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress That is, any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind, or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we saw crawling on the earth, So it is easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread that anything hangs by. Thus easy it is for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him at whose rebuke the earth trembles and before whom the rocks are thrown down? Second consideration, they deserve to be cast into hell, so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God, God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down, Why should it use up the soil? The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mere mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. Consideration number three. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They do not only justly deserve to be cast down, but to, to the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God had fixed between Him and mankind is gone out against them and stands against them, so that they are bound over already to hell. John three eighteen, He that believeth not is condemned already so that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell. That is his place. From thence he is, and as John 8, 23 says, ye are from beneath, and thither he is bound. It is the place that justice and God's word and the sentence of his unchangeable law assign to him. Consideration number four. They're now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not then very angry with them, as he is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell, who there feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath. Yea god is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth yea doubtless with many that are now in this congregation who it may be are at ease than he's with many of those who are now in the flames of hell so that it is not because god is unmindful of their wickedness and does not resent it that he does not let loose his hand and cut them off God is not altogether such a one as themselves, though they may imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit has opened its mouth under them. Consideration number five. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and sees them as his own. At what moment God shall permit him? They belong to him. He has their souls in his possessions and under his dominion. The Scripture rep- represents them as his goods in Luke eleven twelve. 12. The devil, the devils watch them. They are every ever by them at their right hand. They stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back. If God should withdraw his hand, by which they are restrained, they would in one moment fly upon their poor souls. The old serpent is gapping for them. Hell opens its mouth wide to receive them, and if God should permit it, they would be hastily swallowed up and lost. Consideration number six, there are in the souls of wicked men those hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle and flame out into hell fire if it were not for God's restraints. There is laid in the very nature of carnal men a foundation for the torments of hell. There are those corrupt principles, in reigning power in them, and in full possession of them, there are seeds of hell fire. These principles are active and powerful, exceeding violent in their nature. And if it were not for the restraining hand of God upon them, they would soon break out, they would flame out after the same manner as the same corruptions and the same enmity does in the hearts of damned souls and would beget the same torments as they do in them. The souls of the wicked are in Scripture compared to the troubled sea, Isaiah 57. For the present, God restrains their wickedness by his mighty power as he does the raging waves of troubled sea saying hitherto shalt thou come but no further but if god should withdraw that restraining power he would soon carry all before it sin is the ruin and misery of the soul it is destructive in its nature and if god should leave it without restraint they would need nothing else to make the soul perfectly miserable. The corruption of the cart of man is immoderate and boundless in its fury. And while wicked men live here, it is like fire pent up by God's restraints. Whereas if it were let loose, it would set on fire the course of nature. And as the heart is now a sink of sin, so if sin was not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into fiery oven or a furnace of fire and brimstone. Consideration number seven. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. It is no security to a natural man that he is now in health. And that he does not see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by any accident, and there's no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows this is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink of eternity, and that the next step will not be into another world. The unseen, unthought of ways and means of Persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday, The sharpest sight cannot discern them. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at the expense of a miracle or to go out of ordinary course of his providence to destroy any wicked man at any moment. All the means that there are of sinners going out of the world are so in God's hands, and so universally and absolutely subject to His power and determination, that it does not depend at all the less on the mere will of God whether sinners should shall at any moment go to hell than if means were never made use of or at all concerned in the case. Consideration number eight: Natural men's prudence and care to preserve their own lives or the care of others to preserve them, do not secure them a moment. To this, divine providence and universal experience do also bear testimony. There is this clear evidence that man's own wisdom is no security to them from death. That if it were otherwise, we should see some difference between the wise and Politic men of the world, and others with regard to their liableness to early and unexpected death. But how is it in fact? Ecclesiastes 2.16 says, How dieth the wise man, even as the fool? Consideration number nine. All wicked men's pain and contrivance, which they use to escape hell, while they continue to reject Christ, And so remain wicked men, do not secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done or in what he is now doing or in what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. They hear indeed that there are but few saved and that the greater part of men who have died are gone to hell. But each one imagines that he lays out matters better for his own escape than others have done. He does not intend to come to that place of torment. He says within himself that he intends to take effectual care and to order matters so for himself as not to fail. But the foolish children of men Miserably delude themselves in their own schemes, and in confidence in their own strength and wisdom, they trust to nothing but a shadow. The great part of those who have lived under the same means of grace and are now dead are undoubtedly gone to hell. And it was not because they were not as wise as those are now alive, who are, li- who are now alive. It was not because they did not lay out matters as well for themselves to secure their own escape. If we could speak to them and inquire of them one by one, whether they expected when alive and when they used to hear about hell ever to be the subjects of misery, we doubtless should hear one and another reply. No, I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care. But it came upon me, unexpected. I did not look look for it at that time and in that manner. It came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness! I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And when I was saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. Consideration number 10. God has laid Himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell. One moment. God certainly has made no promise either of eternal life or of any deliverance or preservation from eternal death. But what are contained in the covenant of grace, the promises that are given in Christ, in whom all the promises are yea and amen. But surely they have no interest in the promises of the covenant of grace, who are not the children of the covenant, who do not believe in any of the promises, and who have no interest in the mediator of the covenant. So whatever some have imagined and pretended about the promises made to natural men's earnest seeking and knocking, it is plain and manifest. That whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes, until he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction. So that, thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell, they have deserved the fiery pit and are always ready, already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as grace toward them as those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment the devil is waiting for them hell is gapping for them the flames gather and flesh about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up the fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to bend to break out and they have no interest in any mediator there are no means within reach that can be any scrutiny to them in short They have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves every moment, all that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will, an uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. These were the ten considerations for the big picture that Edwards gave. And now follows a long list of applications. He continues. The use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons in this congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are outside of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone, is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of the glowing frames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide, gapping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You probably are not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but you do not see the hand of God in it. But look at other things as a good state of your bodily constitution, your care of your own life, and the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw His hand, they would avail no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold you up to hold up a person that is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, as heavy as lead. And to tend downward with great weight and pressure towards hell if god should let you go you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have stop a falling rock Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of god the earth would not bear you one moment for you are a burden to it the creation says romans 8 groans with you the creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption not willingly The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you life or light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts. Nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God with and do not willingly subserve to any other purpose and groan when they are abused for purposes so directly contrary to their nature and end. And the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of him who has subjected it in hope? They are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for this restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind, otherwise, it would come with fury, and your destruction would be would come like a whirlwind, and you would be like the chaff on the summer threshing floor. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher until an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course, once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, It would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength was 10,000 times greater than it is, yeah, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all that never passed under a great change of heart, by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again, and made new creatures, and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new, and before altogether unexperienced light and life, You are in the hands of an angry God. However, you may have reformed your life in many things and may have had religious affections and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God. It is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may be now of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you, see that it was so with them. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them, when they expected nothing nothing of it. And while they were saying peace and safety, now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes then the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to ascribe to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you close your eyes to sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There's no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in this house of God provoking His pleasure, His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given a reason, as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you ever have done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And consider here more particularly several things concerning that wrath that you are in such danger of. One, consider whose wrath it is. It is the wrath of an infinite God. If it were only the wrath of man, though it were of the most potent prince, it would be comparatively little to be regarded. The wrath of kings is very much dreaded, especially of absolute monarchs who have the possessions and the lives of their subjects wholly in their power to be disposed of at any moment. Proverbs twenty two The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion, who so provoked him to anger, sinneth against his soul. The subject that very much enrages an arbitrary prince is liable to suffer the most extreme torments that human art can invent or human power can inflict. But the greatest earthly potentates in their greatest majesty and strength and when clothed in their greatest terrors are but feeble, despicable worms of the dust in comparison of the great and almighty creator, creator and king of heaven and earth. It is but little they can do when most enraged and when they have exerted the utmost of their fury. All the kings of the earth before God are as grasshoppers they are nothing and less than nothing but their love and their hatred is to be despised the wrath of the great king of kings is as much more terrible than theirs as is his majesty greater than theirs luke 12:4 and i say unto you my friends be not afraid of them that kill the body and after that have no more than they can do but i will forewarn you whom you shall fear fear him which after he has killed has power to cast into hell yea i say unto you fear him second consideration about the wrath it is the fierceness of his wrath that you are exposed to we often read of the fury of god as in isaiah 59 according to their deeds accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries. So Isaiah 66:15, for behold the Lord will come with fire and with chariots with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And in many other places, so Revelation 19:15, we read the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The words are exceedingly terrible if they had only been said the wrath of God. The words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful. But it is the fierceness and wrath of God, the fury of God, the fierceness of the Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful must that be? Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? But it is also the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, as though there would be a very great manifestation of His almighty power, in what the fierceness of His wrath should inflict, as though omnipotence should be, as it were, enraged and exerted as men are wont to exert their strength in the fierceness of, His wrath, of their wrath. Oh then, what will the most, what will be the consequence? What will become of the poor worms that shall suffer it? Whose hand can be strong, and whose hearts can endure to what a dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery must a poor creature be sunk, who shall be subject of this? Consider this, you who are present, that yet remain in an unregenerate state. That God would execute the fierceness of his anger implies that he will inflict wrath without any pity. When God beholds the ineffable extremity of your case and sees your torment to be so vastly disproportionate to your strength and sees how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom he will have no compassion upon you he will not forbear the execution of his wrath or in the least lighten his hand there shall be no moderation or mercy nor will God then at all stay his rough wind he will have no regard to your welfare nor be at all careful lest you should suffer too much in any other sense then only that you shall not suffer beyond what strict justice requires. Nothing shall be withheld because it is so hard for you to bear. Ezekiel 8:18. 8, Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. Now, God stands ready to pity you. This is a day of mercy. You may cry now with some encouragement of obtaining mercy, but one, when, once the day of mercy is past, your most lamentable and the glorious cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be wholly lost and thrown away of God as to any regard to your welfare. God will have no other use to put you to but to suffer misery. You shall be continued in being to no other end for you will be a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction and there will be no other use of this vessel but to be filled full of wrath. God will be so far from pitying you when you cry to him that it is said in Proverbs 1 25 that he will only laugh and mock. How awful are those words, Isaiah 63, which are the words of the great God I will tread them in my anger, I will trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. It is perhaps impossible to conceive of words that carry in them greater manifestation of these three things, contempt, hatred, and fierceness of indignation. If you cry to God to pity you, he will be so far from pitying you in your doleful case or showing you the least regard of your favor, that instead of that, he will only tread you underfoot. And though he will know that you cannot bear the weight of omnipotence treading upon you, He will not regard that, but he will crush you under his feet without mercy. He will crush out your blood and make it fly, and it shall be sprinkled on his garments, so as to stain all his raiment. He will not only hate you, but he will have you in the utmost contempt. No place shall be thought fit for you, but under his feet to be trodden down as the mire of the streets." The misery you are exposed to is that which God will inflict to that end, that he might show what that wrath of Jehovah is. God had on his heart to show to angels and men both how excellent his love is and also how terrible his wrath is. Sometimes, earthly kings have a mind to show how terrible their wrath is by the extreme punishments they would execute on those that would provoke them. Nebuchadnezzar, that mighty and haughty monarch of the Chaldean empire, was willing to show his wrath when enraged with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and accordingly gave orders with the burning fiery furnace uh, should be heated seven times hotter than it was before. Doubtless, it was raised to the utmost degree of fierceness that human art could raise. But the great God is also willing to show his wrath and magnify his awful majesty and mighty power in the extreme suffering of his enemies. Romans 9. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endureth with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And seeing this is his design, and what he has determined, even to show how terrible the unrestrained wrath, the fury and fierceness of Jehovah is, he will do it to effect. There will be something accomplished and brought to pass that will be dreadful with a witness. When the great and angry God has risen up and executed his awful vengeance upon the poor sinner, and the wretch is actually suffering the infinite weight and power of his indignation, then will God call upon the whole universe to behold that awful majesty and mighty power that is to be seen in it. In Isaiah thirty-three twelve, And the people shall be as the burning, burnings of lime, as thorns cut up shall be the burnt in the fire. Hear ye that are far off, What I have done, and ye that are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites who are among us. Thus it will be with you that are in an unconverted state. If you continue in it. The infinite might and majesty and terribleness of the omnipotent God shall be magnified upon you in the ineffable strength of your torments. You shall be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb when you shall be in this state of suffering. The glorious inhabitants of heaven shall go forth and look on the awful spectacle that they may see what the wrath and fierceness of the Almighty is. And when they have seen it, they will fall down and adore that great power and majesty. Isaiah 66, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that had, have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be unquenched, and they shall be abhorring to all flesh. It is an everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness of wrath of, of Almighty God one moment, but you must in suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this horrible misery. When you look forward... You shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty merciless vengeance, and then when you have done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Oh, what can express what the state of a soul in such circumstances is. All that we can possibly say about it gives but a very feeble, faint representation of it. It is inexpressible and inconceivable, for who knows the power of God's anger, as says Psalm 90. How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the small case of every soul in this congregation who has not been born again. However moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it Whether you be young or old, there's reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subject of this very misery to all eternity. We know not who they are, or in what seats they sit, or what thoughts they now have. It may be they're now at ease and hear all these things without much disturbance, and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons, promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew that there was one person, and but one in the whole congregation, that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing would it be to think of. And if we knew who it was, What an awful sight it would be to see such a person. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over him? But alas, instead of one, how many is it likely will remember this discourse in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time even before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health, quiet and secure, should be there before tomorrow morning. Those of you that finally continue in a natural condition that shall keep out of hell longest, will be there in a little time your damnation does not slumber it will come swiftly and in all probability very suddenly upon many of you you have no reason to wonder that you are not already in hell it is doubtless the case of some whom have already been seen and known that never deserved hell more than you and that appeared as likely to have been now alive as you their cases past all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here are you in the land of the living and in the house of God and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity such as you now enjoy? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the doors of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very late in the same miserable condition that you are in and are now in a happy state and their hearts filled with love to him who has so loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood, and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind at such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are pinning and perishing, To see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart, while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and whole for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people who are flocking from day to day to Christ? Are there not many here who have lived long in the world and are not to this day born again? Are not so are so are and so are aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel and have done nothing ever since to have lived, but treasured up wrath against the day of wrath. Oh, sirs, your case, in a special manner, is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart is extremely great. Do you not see? How generality persons of your years are passed over and left in the present remarkable and wonderful dispensation of God's mercy? You need to consider yourself and awake thoroughly out of the sleep. You cannot bear the fierceness and wrath of the infinite God. And you, young men and women and young women, will you neglect this precious season which you now enjoy when so many others of your age are renouncing all youthful vanities and flocking to Christ, you especially have now an extraordinary opportunity. But if you neglect it, it will be soon. It will be soon with you as with those persons who spend all the precious days of youth in sin and are now come to such a dreadful pass in blindness and hardness. And you children who are unconverted, do not you know that you are going down to hell to bear the dreadful wrath of that God who is now angry with you every day and every night? Will you be content to be the children of the devil when so many other children in the land are converted and are become the holy and happy children of the King of Kings? And let everyone that is yet without Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle age or young people or children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of such great favor to some, will doubtless be a day of as remarkable vengeance to others. Men's hearts harden and their guilt increases apace as such a day as this, if they neglect their souls. And never was so great danger of such persons being given up to darkness of heart and blindness of mind. God seems now to be hastily gathering in his elect in all parts of the land, and probably the greater part of adult persons that ever shall be saved will be brought in now in a little time." and that it will be as it was on the great outpouring of the Spirit of God upon Jews in the Apostles' day, the election will obtain, and the rest will be blinded. If this should be the case with you, you will eternally curse this day, and you will curse the day that ever you was born, to see such a season of the pouring out of God's Spirit, and will wish that you had died and gone to hell before you had seen it. Now undoubtedly it is as it was in the days of John the Baptist. The axe is in an extraordinary manner laid at the root of the trees, that every tree which brings for, brings not forth good fruit may be hewn down and cast in the fire. Therefore, let every one that is without, that is out of Christ, now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed. Amen. Let us pray. Father, as we have heard an unusually judgmental picture of your wrath, some of our hearts are inclined this morning to think this is not you. This is not the Bible we grew up with. This is not the God we grew up with and we're used to hear or we like to think of. But Father, this is a picture of the wrath your word presents to us. It's a fiery wrath. But Father, your word also presents to us that today you are giving an opportunity for anyone who is hearing this message to turn to Christ and escape this wrath because in Christ you provided a way of salvation. Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us. And we pray, we pray that you would awaken souls to respond to Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to.